Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for such a Holy Spirit-filled morning already. Thank you that you have ministered to your people and that uh, that name that just got sung about is so powerful that you continue to minister to your people. We thank you that you choose to visit us with your presence, to expose your presence to us and to let us see some. We certainly understand that we could not stand all of your presence or we would not live. We thank you for this time of gathering together with your people, with the body of Christ, and the dynamic that that invokes. And so, Lord Jesus, as we open up the sacred scriptures that you have given us through the writing, I pray that our minds would be open, our hearts would be opened. And, Lord, I pray that you would open my eyes that I might see what it is you want me to see and what it is you want me to expound upon. And I pray that you fill my mouth with the words that are anointed by you. And ultimately, I pray that each one of us will provide a landing spot for your word into our hearts. May it come alive to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody said, Amen. We continue this morning to work our way through the letter of James. And uh, as, as always, it's just a reminder that what we do when we go through a book or a letter like this is we allow the text to dictate the topic. And, and when I'm preparing for Sunday mornings, and I don't say, well, I think I'm going to speak on whatever this week. You look at the text, and the text dictates what we're going to talk about. And so today, uh, we're going to, in a few moments, if you want to turn to James, uh, James chapter 5, James broaches the subject of the coming of the Lord. And uh, it's interesting, this is, I forget what, but this is somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 years after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And the folks in that day lived with a firm and uh, eager expectation. They thought Jesus was going to come back any moment. Sound familiar? They thought he was coming back any time because, well, my goodness, it's been 60 years. How much longer does he need to wait? And so you see a fair amount, not a lot. If you read through the scriptures, you don't see it. It's not the constant theme, but it is a recurring theme. And James, um, and of course, it's interesting to note that he's the physical, natural brother of the Lord Jesus, as well as a spiritual brother. But he begins to talk about the coming of the Lord. And in light of that inevitability of Jesus coming back, James addresses the believers that he's writing to about their conduct and their behavior in light of that, in view of the coming of the Lord. And, and you know, and you heard me say, no one knows when. Anybody tells you they know when Jesus is coming back, don't buy any property from them. <laughs> don't take any, any coins from them. Anyway, we don't know when, but we know that he is. And whether or not I know when doesn't matter, but if I know that he is, then I need to, in in view of that, through the lens of that, I need to conduct myself in a certain manner, in a certain way. And in this passage, he particularly addresses the wealthy of the community. 
And he, and we'll read it in a moment, but buddy, he gets on them. Of course, y'all know I like James. James my kind of guy. He just says it like it is. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. And uh, I probably would have got along just fine with him. And then we'll finish up the way he finishes up. That is the fact that patient endurance is what gets us through. Patient endurance in light of his coming. I'll come back to the, to the issue of wealth in a moment. James 5. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 12. <clears throat> and if you wouldn't mind standing while we read the scripture. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. That wasn't far enough, by the way. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And by the way, that word brothers is gender, non-gender specific, male and female. Until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You may be seated. We start off where James starts off, and that is the responsibility of wealth. Now, let me just deal with this here. How do you define wealth? How do you define rich? Someone's rich. Uh, uh, my, uh, my wife's nephew got in a car with me one time. I had, if you, some of you remember when I first started pastoring here, I left a company that furnished me with a company car. And so I had to go out and buy a car. And I, we got a, a grand, a Mercury Grand Marquis. Best vehicle I've ever ridden in to this day. Best riding vehicle I've ever owned. Of course, my kids said, uh, you know, Looks like Pawpaw came to see us. Um, <laughs> but we got in it one day. It's a nice car. It had leather seats. You know, it had, it, and one of the nephews said, Uncle Larry, y'all must be rich. Well, that same nephew a few years ago sat on, in our living room and said, you guys live in a freaking mansion. 
Well, if you've ever been to our house, you know we don't live in a mansion. So rich is a little bit relative. Wealth is relative. If I were to take everybody in this room, regardless of your income level, if I were to take you across the border into Mexico, you would immediately be some of the wealthiest people in that country, no matter what your checkbook looks like. And so I've seen people take this passage and decide that rich people are evil and poor people are righteous. And that is not what James is saying. Not, not saying it at all. And, and I'll read a statement in a moment by Albert Barnes. But he's talking about the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of wealth and what it can do to us. Jesus, of course, during the parable of the sower and the soil says one of the issues that you deal with is is the deceitfulness, the deception that money, not just money, but possessions can do to you. He's talking about the use and abuse of wealth. I'll say it again in a moment, but there's nothing wrong with wealth. Nothing wrong with with gaining. I heard I told you last week. If you, if you own a company, I want you to make a big profit. I want you to make a big old profit. If you're not, we need to have a talk. The problem is, is that the people he was writing to, and many people reading it today, did not keep in proper perspective the issue of wealth. And wealth, unchecked and without the proper perspective, can cause us to think things about ourselves that are not true. Maybe we're better than them. Maybe God has blessed me more than them because whatever, maybe fill in the blank. I'm better. I'm good. It all equals arrogance. You've heard me say many times, Do not gauge your relationship to God by what your checkbook looks like. Don't look at your checkbook and make a determination of whether or not God likes you. I can tell you, God likes you. If your checkbook is laughing at you, God still likes you. Don't don't use that. That's the wrong tool to use. The scripture is what you need to use. God loves you. But keep, we need to keep our possessions in proper perspective. And, and you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm sure wish there were some rich people here to listen to this. All of you are rich. If you have possessions, this is you. He's aimed at you. He, he talks about in verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. Some of your versions will say rusted or, or it's developed rust. You know, gold and silver do not rust. What's James talking about? He's talking about the possessions that we have. He, and William Barclay says this way, This rust is proof of the impermanence and ultimate valuelessness, dictionary didn't like that word, of all earthly things. In other words, the things that we hold on to that would be earthly things, there is no permanence. There is no no uh, eternal value of the things that we hold on to, whether no matter what it is, no matter how valuable it is. And and James is trying to get this across to the to the readers. 
understanding that the most precious and apparently indestructible things that we own are doomed to decay. You could obviously make some exceptions to that hard jewelry stones and things like that. But generally speaking, these are great chairs that you're sitting on. But one day they're not going to exist. One, a matter of fact, when we bought these, I carried a couple of truckloads down to the Powell Avenue, Powell Road, and put them in the metal dumpster. They're gone. They decay. And what you, what you're trying to hold on to with a wrong perspective, whatever that is, it's going to be, it's going to decay. It's going to rust. Albert Barnes said this. Well, first of all, yeah, Albert Barnes said there's no sin. In merely being rich. Where sin exists peculiarly among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to engender in the heart, and the way in which it is used. That's the issue, not that you, you have the, the, the wealth. It's when we concentrate on the material things. When we, we focus on and we hold on to them you remember this, we were mentioning this Wednesday night in our home group. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus said, go give everything away and give to the poor. And he's walked away sad. And the reason he walked away sad was that, and I, you know, I've said this, you've heard it so many times, you're probably tired of hearing it, that Jesus was not interested in the rich young ruler not having possessions. He was interested in the possessions not having the rich young ruler. There's a difference. And this is the attitude we have to have with our possessions. You say, well, I don't have enough to worry about. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised what you find yourself holding on to. But I want to reiterate that we're not saying that people who attain wealth are evil or there's anything wrong. And Albert Barnes, a long time ago, said, that's not a sin. The sin is, how did you get it? Did you get it illegally? Did you get it... uh, defrauding somebody did you get it by is it is uh, psalms and proverbs talks about uh, putting weights on the scales and cheating people is that how you got it well then that's a sin what are you doing with it his ire james ire is aimed at the possessions that if you can use quotation marks that would rot in idleness and in, in that is not being purpose for the kingdom of God. In other words, we should use, we should aim to use our resources to lay up treasure in heaven. And, you know, there are many ways to lay up treasure in heaven. I said earlier that he talks about the rich laid up treasure in the last days. And I said that wasn't far, they didn't go far enough. You need to go further than the last days. If you're going to lay up treasure, you need to go all the way into heaven. I'll lay up your treasure. You're sitting there thinking, well, maybe we're not supposed to have anything. That's not true. Not true at all. I'll get to that too. You say, if you get to everything you say you're going to get to, we won't ever get out of here. <laughs> it is, it is important to understand that in the writing, at the time of this writing, we're talking about an Eastern culture. And in that Eastern culture, there were three main sources of wealth. And a 401k was not one of them. And that would be corn, grain, 
And probably the, the most wealthy uh, signal was uh, garments, would be garments. And I, I could have given you a long list of scriptures uh, dealing with garments, but corn, grain, and garments was what you would recognize someone as being wealthy, and particularly fine garments. And so what what are we doing with those things? What are we doing with what God has put in our hands? Now, I don't believe, I'm not a socialist. I don't believe everybody is supposed to have the same amount of money. I'm firmly convinced that if you were to take all the money in the world, all the money in the world, and divide it up equally among every person in the world, within some amount of time, I can't tell you how long, all of that money would be right back where it came from. And everybody would have about the same amount they did before. I just don't believe, anyway, you say, well, you're a communist. No, I'm not a communist. That's the whole point. Okay, I'm digging a hole I can't get out of. <laughs> Let me just say this. Regarding what we put aside to provide for us a what we call a rainy day, we ask the question about who or what do we trust our lives? To whom do we trust our lives? Or to what do we trust our lives? Do you put more trust in that paycheck that you're going to get at the end of the week, whether it be a piece of paper or something deposited into your account, do you put more trust in that than you, and then you do God? One of the ways I can tell you that you don't is if you don't tithe, you don't trust God. Boy, you're getting meddling now, preacher, messing with our money. I don't need your money. Church doesn't need your money. You need to give. I love the story. My, my dad, a guy told me at my, I think it was at my mother's funeral. And he said, let me tell you something about your daddy. And if you never knew my, if you ever knew my daddy, you think if I'm quiet and don't talk much. Anyway, dad was just a country boy, redneck from the woods. Nothing wrong with that, is there? And this guy said, let me tell you something about your daddy. He said, I was working with your daddy one day and he said, I told him, he said, Mr. Granger, I just can't afford to tithe. Now, I don't know how I got off on this, but somebody needs to hear it. But he said, I can't afford to tithe. And my daddy said, Johnny, you can't afford not to tithe. And uh, it kind of surprised me that my daddy would tell him that. And uh, I will say this, that until my, until my dad was not a Christian until I was 16 years old. But every Sunday, everybody say every. every. I mean, every Sunday, we, my mom and my two brothers and I would get up and go to church. There was never a question. There was never an option. Did you hear something, parents? Anyway. And my mother would sit down and write a tithe check every Sunday morning with Daddy sitting right next to her. He never objected. Anyway, fast forward. He said, Johnny, you can't afford to tithe. He said, well, I don't know how you can say that. He said, I'll make a deal with you. You start tithing to the church and for three months. At the end of three months, if you can tell me that God has not blessed you, I'll give you all the money back that you gave to the church. Now, it wasn't coming from the church. It was coming from my daddy's pocket. He said, I'll take you up on that, Mr. Granger. And so he started. He, and he told me at my mother's funeral, he said, you know what? Your daddy never had to give me a nickel. Because God blessed me beyond I could imagine. Why? Because he decided 
to trust God. If you trust God more than you trust your paycheck, you'll be faithful and obedient. The other thing he's dealing with with these folks is unethical business practices. They were withholding wages. There were people out mowing their fields and they were withholding their wages or weren't paying them enough. Now, let me just... If you own a business and you're paying someone as a contractor, but you should be paying them as an employee, that's a sin. Whoo, boy, it got quiet in here. You're defrauding. I know, I've heard of... All kind of people that they have people working for them and they dictate their hours. They dictate their days. They dictate what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. And they pay them as a contractor. That's illegal. And that's a sin. And whoever needs to hear that, if the conviction fits, wear it. Well, I got, I'm getting mean the last two weeks. It is true. And that's what he's dealing with here is defrauding people, cheating people. If you cheat on your IRS taxes, same thing. Okay, I'll put in my resignation any moment here. I don't understand why we Christians think we can get away with stuff. And cheating on taxes is one of them. I I know people, I, I collect all my stuff in cash. And I put it in a shoebox and I put it under my bed. And I don't claim any of it on my taxes. Illegal. Defrauding. And the old saying, be sure your sins will find you out. Get off of that. Okay, I'll get off of it. The other issue he was dealing with with these folks is not just living in luxury, but living in luxury that's self-indulgent. I don't have a problem with people living in luxury. What is luxury? It just means be easy. It just means having, you know, a little bit of comfort. But is it self-indulgent? I read this, kind of help us to understand that. A magazine advertisement told of the shopping spree of an oil-rich sultan. He purchased 19 Cadillacs, one for each of his 19 wives. He had bigger problems than Cadillacs, I tell <laughs> And paid extra to have the cars lengthened. He also bought two Porsches, six Mercedes, a $40,000 speedboat, and a truck for hauling it. Add to the list 16 refrigerators, $47,000 worth of women's luggage. He must have been sending them somewhere. I don't know. Two Florida grapefruit trees, two reclining chairs, one slot machine. His total bill was $1.5 million. And he had to pay another $194,500 to have it all delivered. That's self-indulgent luxury. <laughs> and I think that's sort of what he's dealing with here. That's a, It's allowing ourselves to focus our attention solely on our own satisfaction. And entertaining, as we talked about a few weeks ago, again, the writings of James, the entertaining of the spirit of pleasure and desire. I can't go back and read that message. It's still in the archives. 
And it's a, but it's allowing Jesus to have his rightful place above. Everybody say above. above. The world's goods that he has given us. Don't get, go out and get rid of your goods. Don't go out and get rid of your corn, your grain, and your garments. But place Jesus above them so that you can lay up treasures for heaven. There is no, uh, there is no righteousness. There is no value in just being broke. A lot of us in this room can, can attest to that. Oh goodness. This is really hard to talk about. Let me just read you. You're in uh, James. Go back uh, to your left, or if you've got a device, go to First Timothy. I, I just got to read you these verses. First Timothy six. It's not that far. You won't. You won't be tired when you get there. If I could ever find it, I'd read it. All right, First Timothy is just three verses, six, verse seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, again, who are the rich? Anyway, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. And ready to share, thus, don't miss the thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I want you to notice something. Not once in that passage does Paul mention that they need to get rid of all of their wealth so that they're not rich anymore. Not once. But what he says is, Put Jesus above all of that and manage it in such a way that you're laying up treasure in heaven. That's what he's talking about. All right, we'll get off money for a while. Everybody's squirming. Matter of fact, where are the baskets? Let's take up the offering again. I'm just Patient steadfastness. Patient steadfastness. He says, okay, therefore, brothers, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. And he's not just saying, pat your foot, bide your time, and don't get, you know, don't get too excited. What he's saying is, be patient and, and, and continue to live. We'll get to that in a moment. But, but he says, notice the farmer. He's got the early rains and he's got the late rains. The early rains are typically around October that he's talking about. And then the late rains would be like as late as April. And so if you're a farmer, you can't get you know, too impatient. Hey, where's my, where are my crops? Well, you gotta have the early rains. And you know, we gotta wait for the early rains in October. Well, alright, the early rains have come. Well, we still gotta wait for the late rains. Well, that's all the way to April. Well, you're in the wrong business. Because you gotta wait. And James is saying in the same manner, you and I, Understand that there, as I said when we started, Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when. You know, I, he could come back tonight. He could come back before I'm done. That's probably what I'm going to need to rescue me out of this message. 
But he could come back in another thousand years. What are we doing? Like the farmer, we're just watching the rains come. The farmer didn't sit in the house reading the Reader's Digest and the Farmer's Almanac during that time. He was farming. And James is saying, we need to keep farming. We need to keep doing what we're doing. So that, as we mentioned recently, blessed is that servant whose master finds him so doing when he comes. People say, what's your eschatology? I say, that's my eschatology right there. When Jesus comes back, I don't want him to find me looking in the sky trying to figure out when he's coming back. I don't want him to find me have a stack of books on my desk to try to determine the date of his coming or the season. I want him to find me with my hand on a plow. I want him to find me when he comes back with my hand on the plow and so doing what he called me and told me to do that he has to tell me twice, hey, I'm here. Well, who is that behind me? And, but he gives us this instruction, establish your hearts. How do we, how are we patient? He said, establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. He mentioned this several times. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Or strengthen your heart for the coming of the Lord. He's saying, Pay attention to your walk in Christ. Pay attention to the fact that you're a farmer. Pay attention to where your hands should be. Your hands should be on the plow, plowing the field with your bag of seed hanging off your side, sowing seed for the kingdom. Establish your hearts. Understanding that all of this can only be obeyed by depending on supernatural power. You can't. Establish your heart. You cannot strengthen your heart except that the Holy Spirit through supernatural work does so. And you place your full trust in the Lord. It's establishing your hearts as a call to rely totally on the Holy Spirit to carry out the word. D. Edmund Hebert was the professor of New Testament at a Mennonite seminary. He said, instead of feeling agitated and shaken up by their experiences of oppression, remember who he's writing to, they must develop an inner sense of stability. And that's really what that word establish and strengthen means. It means to, to gain stability. And he's saying in the midst, and remember the people he's writing to were dealing with a lot of issues that were causing Problems in, in the midst. He said, still dealing with that, they need to develop a place in their Christian walk of stability. Not going to the left and not going to the right. Not being blown with every wind, but stable. And remember that he's dealing, we, we talked about when we first started this letter, how that they were dealing with personal issues. And, and you know, how they, and of course, he goes on to say, well, you know, watch your mouth, basically. Watch your mouth with one another. He says it again. Do not grumble against one another. You know, he wouldn't have written that if there wasn't some people grumbling. Do not grumble. And the reason for that is if you're in a, if you're in a place of pressure, whatever causes the pressure, it could be financial, relational, it could be vocational, it could be you hadn't had enough sleep, whatever causes the pressure in your life, 
It causes things to come to the surface and be exposed. The things that we had the ability to govern and check when we're in a pressured, pressurized situation and we're squeezed by life circumstances, things come out of us and we say, where did that come from? And he says, and in those moments that you're squeezed, in those moments when it's tense, in those moments when your checkbook is laughing at you, don't grumble against your brother. Why did he say that? Because that's what we would do. We would be irritated. We would be irritable. And we would grumble against somebody. That's not establishing your hearts. And that's not preparing for the coming of the Lord. You want God to come back with you grumbling against your brothers and sisters? I'm going to grumble. I'm not, I'm not going to grumble. And then, he's, then we finish up, which is almost an overlap, suffering and patience. I don't like, I don't like having to talk about suffering. I wish I was one of those preachers that could just preach on everything's great all the time. You never, no, none of God's people is ever going to suffer. But then I'd have to throw this book away. And that's not what that book says. And he says, think about the prophets of old. Think about those who've come before you, what all they went through. Jesus said, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you think that the prophets were persecuted and they suffered what makes you think that you're not going to? I know you can't build big churches with that kind of a message. But I, I can't change my message. Once again, if you're in the book of James, turn back one book, Hebrews 11. Or scroll up your device. 1132. What more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, which meant somebody was after them, with a sword, were made strong out of weakness. Weakness it comes through suffering. Become became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Now, just don't stop right there. It's interesting to me that at this point in this passage, whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews, he's he, he's continuing with heroes of the faith. You know, we've had people who got resurrected, escaped the sword, uh, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. But he doesn't change the fact that all of these people are heroes of the faith. And then he starts talking about some were tortured. Well, wait a minute. If they're heroes of the faith, how come God didn't uh, bail them out of being tortured? Why didn't he deliver them from that? Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, uh, not the little stupid cigarettes, but rocks. 
They were sawn in two or sawn in half, and this was not a magician trick gone bad. They were literally sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. So the person who escaped the edge of the sword and the person who was killed by the sword are both listed as heroes of the faith. Don't miss that. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. I love this next statement. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. I'm not reading that to make you feel bad. I make, I'm reading that to say when we suffer things, life, persecution, we're in pretty good company. And James is saying, in light, in view of the coming of the Lord, you need to have a stability in your life that you can go through that kind of stuff. Then he talks about Job. I mean, you always got to go to Job, the steadfastness of Job. Listen to what Job said. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Watch the next verse. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, a bunch of us can say, oh, me. Because anytime something happens to us, we say, well, well God, have you gone to sleep? The, the disciples in the storm, they wake him up and said, don't you care about us? You don't, you don't, you don't care one rip about us. You over there sleeping and we got this storm brewing. Don't we all do that? Job didn't. At the end of the day, at the end of the chapter, I love this verse. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. He didn't just restore his fortunes. He restored his fortunes double after he went through the things that he went through. There was a steadfastness of Job that you and I need to have. Do you think, do you think there's a possibility that in the coming days, uh, days, weeks, years, months, I don't know, we might see persecution against Christendom that gets closer to this than we want to admit? You hadn't been reading the news if you don't believe that. And then he finishes up with this thing about an oath. Don't, don't speak an oath. He's basically just saying, don't overspeak beyond your ability. Don't let your mouth overload your... Let your word be clear. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. When you say something, let it mean something. Let your word be your bond. I'll never forget, I've told this story before. 
um, and I'm almost done, so don't get nervous. You got anything to Owen? Uh, anyway, this subdivision back here is called Woodridge Place. And most of the houses built in that subdivision were built by a guy named Ben Dixon. And you may have seen his wife's name on a lot of real estate signs in the area, Margaret Dixon, probably one of the top realtors in the area. Sorry about that, Doug, uh, and Charlie, and others. But Ben built that, and a lot of other places, uh, Shelley Acres, a lot of places, but Ben was, was the main builder of most of these houses back here. And I was with a company at the time, and, and we wanted to do business with Ben at Shelley Acres. And uh, I went to him. I said, "We, you know, he said, well, I'd like to buy some product for you from you. And I said, well, here's the credit application. If you'll fill this out, we'll get you. He said, I don't fill out credit applications. I said, well, i got to have a credit application so we can open up your line of credit. He said, you go down there to Wilson Bank, and he gave me a name. You go in there and talk to them, and you ask them about me. That's all you need. I said, well, Ben, they don't. The company I was with at the time was based in Akron, Ohio. I said, Ben, they, they don't. They need a piece of paper. He said, I'm not signing anything. I was one of the largest developers and builders in Mount Juliet. So I said, well, I'll see what I can do. So I went back, and I talked to them. Anyway, long story short, somehow they said, Go ahead and extend him a line of credit. We'll see what happens. Of course, you know, the kind of guy he is, we never missed a beat. And he said, and that's what he said to me. He said, I just want to let you know one thing. If I tell it to you, you can take it to the bank. Literally. My word is my bond. Would that we had more people today like that. Hmm. Stand with me. 